the 24th of February, 2022, the world learned anew a golden rule of history. Never say never. Early that morning, Russian airborne troops launched an assault at a key airport outside the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, in an effort to decapitate the regime. At the same time, columns of tanks rolled across the border from Belarus and into Ukraine. The warning signs that Vladimir Putin was planning an invasion were there for all to see, but no one could believe that nearly 80 years after the end of the Second World War, Europe would ever see another full-scale conventional conflict. The fighting is more intense and bloody than anything since 1945. It's already had huge consequences not only for Russia and Ukraine, but also for the rest of the world. The unthinkable has happened, and there is no way of knowing where the story will end. Hello and welcome back to Battleground. I'm Saul David. And I'm Patrick Bishop. Those of you who followed our last series on the Falklands will know who we are. For the newcomers, we're both best-selling military historians with a deep interest in conflict. Not just the bang-bang, but the political and social factors that underpin all war. The Falklands, of course, was history. Uh, Ukraine is very much in the here and now. It's six months old and shows no sign of ending anytime soon. So we believe that after the huge surge in media interest at the outset, coverage has started to fall away. Actually, for some months, this has been the case. And if you really want to find out what's going on, you've got to look quite hard for it now. Now, I think that's very regrettable, given the enormous significance of the war. Uh, So we intend to plug the knowledge gap using the same methods as we did in our last series. Each week, we're going to bring you real, in-depth updates and analysis of what's been happening diving deeper and staying down longer than anyone else to provide some real understanding of what's been happening on the battlefield and on the political front. And we'll be basing our reports on real expertise, with interviews with a range of insiders with direct experience of events, including reports from the front line. In this episode, though, we're going to start off by going back to the beginning. It's easy to forget the shock we all felt at the news that after all that sabre-rattling, the Russians finally were going in. Now, we're very lucky to have the testimony of BBC Panorama reporter Paul Kenyon to remind us of uh, how that felt. He was in Kiev that morning and witnessed firsthand the dramatic battle when Russian paratroops tried to storm Hostomel Airport, which is just outside the capital, an encounter which, as it turned out, profoundly affected the course of the war. Let's hear now what he had to say. When we got there, it, was, it happened to be three days before the invasion. Of course, we didn't know at that point. And I remember arriving in Kiev, where I've been many times before, and there was uh, an atmosphere of... Uh, uh, of, of fear, of concern, of lots of uh, stories which were spooking journalists. And the night before the invasion, I remember going down into the lobby of the hotel to have a quick beer before we went out. And um, there was a guy from the Washington Post there with a little sort of gaggle of journalists around him. And he said, um, I said, what's happening? And he said, we just heard a rumour from a former intelligence officer um, that it's going to happen. It's going to happen tonight. And I said, it's, it's going to happen tonight. How do you know? And he said, this guy's really, really reliable. And I said, yeah, but come on, how would he know? And he said, um, well, we're taking it seriously. This is the most um, serious rumour that we've heard so far. And we're thinking we will, um, we're probably going to um, evacuate some of our staff tonight. And I said, well, overnight? And he said, yeah, because you don't know. It could be a carpet bombing. We do not know what's going to happen, but there's something serious going to happen tonight. So I texted my producer, who was upstairs doing some technical stuff with cameras and things. I, I wrote something like, um, 
it's all going to kick off tonight. And he ignored me and I said, it's all going to kick off tonight. Is anybody listening or something like that? And he said, um, he eventually came down after I had sent what appeared at the end to be about 30 or 40 very desperate text messages. And he ran downstairs and he came over looking a bit cross and he said, Paul, what is going on? And I said, listen, the Washington Post guys really serious. Some of their staff are evacuating. Other journalists who don't want to stay here are evacuating. They say it's going to happen tonight. And he said, um, Paul, it is not going to happen tonight. And the thing is that my producer um, has a PhD in Russian and has spent most of his life reporting on the collapse of the former Soviet Union. I mean, this is his specialism. So we went out to a Georgian restaurant and on the way there, I remember stopping and saying, Nick, look me in the eye. What are the chances of the Russians invading tonight? And he said, the honest truth is 99% against. And I said, 99%. And he said, it's almost impossible. Let's give it 99% against and go and have a lovely Georgian meal. And um, we went to the best Georgian restaurant in Kiev. And uh, we sat down and had a monster meal with uh, lashing uh, of red wine and really enjoyed ourselves. And at the end, I remember there's one uh, waitress who looked slightly concerned about the fact it had got to about uh, midnight or just after. And I said, um, something along the lines of, do you have any bomb shelters here? And she said, in, in Ukrainian, bomb shelters? And we said, yeah, just in case anything happens. And she sort of, she looked around a bit startled and said, no, no, why would anybody need a bomb shelter. So um, it was a bit mischievous, really. And we set off back to the hotel. And I remember as we walked into the hotel, which is one of the big main hotels next to St. Sophia's Cathedral, I said, um, you know, there's a sign here that says bomb shelter this way in the hotel. Let's be sensible and mature here. Let's just follow the sign and make sure we know the directions in case in the middle of the night, all lights down and there is a massive bombing. So um we, um, I remember my producer and fixer were kind of rolling their eyes and saying, oh, God, go on, let's go and have a look then. We'll indulge you type of thing. So we set off and walked through the, the hotel corridors and then down into this basement. And I said, OK, I, this is it. This is the bomb shelter. Two stories down, feels reasonably safe. We can all go to bed in peace. And then that night or in the early hours of the morning, 4 or 5 a.m., something like that, I remember being woken by the first boom, boom. And you could hear it, you know, and it's that deep, resonant boom. It's, it's like nothing you've experienced unless you've, you've heard it for real. It's not like in the movies. You feel it sort of uh, pulsating, if you like, or you feel it trembling through your body. And um, we were probably, uh, how far away? 15 kilometres away because it was in the north of the city, but still this deep, resonant boom, which slightly shakes you uh, and which is so discomforting that it can't be explained in the middle of the night. And seconds later, there was an announcement in the hotel and it said, everybody go down to the bomb shelter. Everybody go down to the bomb shelter. And I remember opening my hotel bedroom door and there were people running by with equipment and blankets and pillows and all rushing towards the lifts, which we'd been told not to use, realising we'd been told not to use them. Everybody was uh, running down the stairs. And I remember running past the manager of the hotel, who by this stage I'd got to know reasonably well. And as I ran by, I said, Paul, it's happening. It's going to be big. And uh, I remember it sent a real chill through me because it's the unexpected and it's the, uh, well, it's, it's the unknown. It's the fact you don't know how 
deadly the scale is going to be. And um, you think at the back of your mind, this is going to be something approaching a carpet bombing. They're going to take out Kiev. Whereas just a few hours earlier, you know, we've been sitting in a Georgian restaurant enjoying ourselves. You think, my goodness, I mean, it's a big city, but with, you know, concentrated air attacks, this could be really problematic. And we got down into the the basement and uh, the Washington Post journalist was sitting there sagely in the corner, nodding his head and uh, not quite smiling, but uh, a little smug, I would say. And um, we all sat there and there was this really chilling announcement by the manager of the hotel. He stood in front of everybody in this very, in this sort of whitewashed bunker. And I remember it, it was really emotional because of the tone in his voice and his voice was shaking. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, um, it's begun. The Russians have started bombing our beloved city um, or something like that. And then he said, um, there are some practical things you need to know. And he told us about various practical things about stay in the shelter. We will have somebody on watch upstairs. He said, we will not let Russian soldiers into this hotel. We have padlocked the doors. Nobody can come in. But if they insist on coming in and if there's gunfire, we may have no choice at some stage. And then he told the rest of this, he, he gave the rest of his sort of thoughts about what might happen overnight. And then at the end, he said, um, there was this pause and we're all sitting there in absolute silence. And he said, may God bless us all. And I remember it sounds ridiculous that it can still make me slightly emotional, but it was the time when you thought this is all going to happen. And... Um, it was a funny, really, because we all turned around to each other. And I remember there were some very experienced war journalists, and I've been to several war zones before, but it was the tone in which he said it and the appeal to God and the unity was felt in that room at that time and the fear of the Russians coming into the hotel. It, it all came. It all came to something which was a, a quite a sort of an emotional rush and a lot of people who were kind of mentally knocked out and exhausted by it and who sat there looking very worried indeed. So um, the next morning, by the time light came down, a few of us had trickled back upstairs. I did uh, go back upstairs. I got some stuff. And obviously, your first mind then turns to the journalism. What are we going to do? Where can we go? And it's difficult. It's difficult because of the unknown, but it's difficult because a lot of us didn't have vehicles. We went outside to try and get a vehicle. There were no vehicles. Obviously, all the drivers have left. We thought the first thing that we can do is that we can go... uh, to the station. And of course, the first thing, going to the station, you think there's going to be some kind of exodus. People are going to be leaving. We can hear explosions still in Kiev that morning. There were no cars around. So we went down into the tube station and miraculously they were still running. We got onto one of the um, the trains and we, we our original intention was to go to the airport, but it was so crowded. It was so chaotic. We just thought, let's get to the train station, main tra- train station, central Kiev, see what happens. So we got to the main train station and, um, I mean, it was scenes like uh, World War Two. There were people with um, bags of belongings and um, with everything that they, they had, with lots of pets. I remember pets everywhere. There were dogs and cats in cages um, and elderly people, which is always the most disturbing, with sort of, um, you know, bags of their shoulders full of things that you think you probably won't need, sort of, you know, vegetables and bags of rice. And, you know, but people are taking everything they found that morning and they're putting it all into their personal belongings and they're, they're all there and the crush outs 
outside the train station was like I've never seen before. And uh, we stood back from it and we watched it. And you knew that history was being made. And I thought, I will never see anything like this again, I hope. There were people fighting. It, it was good-natured in, uh, on the whole, but there were people who obviously were getting restless and scared. And in the middle of all this... There was quite a loud explosion that sounded quite nearby and suddenly you realise just how vulnerable you were. It's quite an open space in the middle of Kiev and um, it sat that nobody could mistake the sound of that explosion. It was a big resonant thump and um, more and more people were rushing towards the door at the train station. And um, we watched this happen for a while and it was interesting also that there were a number of young people who were turning up with young men, late teens, early 20s, turning up with rucksacks and we stopped a couple and my producer who is fluent in Russian um, stopped them and was saying, tell us what you're doing, where you're going. And these guys were people who'd been in Donbass and Crimea in 2014 and were saying, it's time to, to go and serve again. We served on the front. We know what to expect. We're off. We're going to get the Russians. We're going to prevent them taking over our country. And there was this emotional outpouring from these guys. And they were collecting in groups just outside various sort of coffee shops and things, which were incidentally, of course, all closed because people were fleeing at that stage. But these young lads, and you couldn't help but be impressed by their courage and their determination and their eagerness to serve First thing in the morning, just a few hours after the first thuds and explosions in, in, in Kiev, and they were there and ready to go. And I've kept in touch with one of them since, and he did get to the front line, and he's fought uh, all over Ukraine now in Donbass, in the north northern suburbs of Kiev, and he's been down to the southern city of Mykolaiv. He's been everywhere. You know, these guys live by their instincts, not by their training, and they're remarkable. Anyway, so I'll tell you, the next bit was... Um, when we were in the train station, we were looking, obviously, for the next place to go, the next story to tell. You know, this, the, the, none of the phones were working uh, because uh, everybody was trying to use them. So everything was down, effectively, and you have to make a decision about where you go. Now, our problem was that we didn't have flak jackets, and we didn't have flak jackets, which are obviously a requirement of all media organisations in that kind of situation, and we didn't have them because it all seemed so unreal, you know, you get into the car that morning and even though there are explosions, you think this is from some considerable distance. I haven't seen a plane in the sky. This is coming in from the north, possibly from Belarus. It cannot be coming in uh, from anywhere near Kiev. And there certainly can't be any troops on the ground. So we, we, we decided to take the risk. They're also, as you know, extremely heavy and cumbersome to take. So we didn't. We managed to get a vehicle which had quite an experienced driver who'd, um, who'd served a lot on the front lines in eastern Ukraine and who our fixer had managed to summon. Uh, we all piled into this car. A local journalist hitched a lift with us and said, yeah, let's go. Where are you going? We toured the city for about uh, half an hour. And then we said, we're going to go to the airport. We've just heard there's been some kind of explosion there. And... Um, the local journalist said, it's not for me. I don't fancy it. So we dropped him off and we continued and the roads were absolutely jam-packed. And I remember there was a sort of um, a, a dual carriageway type of thing going north out of the city. And I remember that we, our driver, <laughs> because of his experience in war zones and because he knew the urgency of this errand, 
He drove on the wrong side of the carriageway. And I remember him going up there. It was completely empty on one side, um, obviously, because there's nobody coming into Kiev. And he did that um, that thing where, I mean, I was in the back and I was just hunched down. And you think the guy looks pretty experienced to me, but he's going past two lanes of solid traffic. And then we came and then we saw in the distance this sort of um, this plume of black smoke. And um, he said, that's Hostomel. That's Hostomel. And we thought that's got to have been some kind of missile attack from outside the country. And um, we came off the road, basically went across a track in a field, pretty much, um, to get there quickly, and then went down some back roads. And by the time we got to Hostomel Airport, um, there was a sort of eerie quiet on the roads around there. And we came around a corner, and there were sort of large metal fences all around it and we could see the smoke coming from the center of the airport what looked like the center of it and we could hear the crackling of fire and as we came around the corner uh, we went down this this sort of side road that led to the gates of the airport and um, there were five or six soldiers uh, coming towards us in the middle of the road and I remember that as we approached them the lead one and the one just behind him got down on one knee, lifted their weapons and pointed them to us. And I thought, they are definitely going to shoot. I mean, I, everybody knows that as the universal signature behaviour for we are about to shoot. And um, I was sitting in the back of the car and I remember shouting, no, 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 like that. And they didn't shoot, and they, but they remained in position. So the threat remained. And our driver... Now, the fact that he'd been to eastern Ukraine wasn't necessarily a good thing because he was used to extremely violent uh, situations and might have thought it was a risk that he wanted to take. And I said, no, 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 turn, turn the car, just turn it. So just halfway. So he turned the car so that our window was facing the lead soldier. We thought they were Ukrainians. Why would there be any Russian on the ground, anywhere in the capital of Ukraine. It seemed absolutely absurd, the prospect. So we thought they were Ukrainians, and we thought because they'd been under attack overnight, uh, they were very uh, sensitive to any unknown vehicle and that they might shoot by mistake. And so um, I said, just slightly turn the car around, and my producer, who speaks fluent Russian, opened the window and said in Russian, hey, we're from the BBC, it's okay, we're from the BBC, um, do you want to speak to us? And um, the lead soldier, I remember, he was standing right next to the window with his gun pointing in the car, and he just, he flicked his wrist and went, niet, niet, very firmly. I said, do not back away, don't back away with any hurry or any sudden movements, very, very slowly turn the car, and we did, in a sort of half-moon shape, turn the car around on this track very, very slowly with all our hands in the air as if to say, don't worry, don't worry, you know, we're, we're from the UK, it's OK, we're all friends. And just as we we're doing that, my producer said, um, oh, my God, they're Russians. They're Russians. And I said, they can't be Russians. He said, they're Russians. They, they had the black and orange tape down their arms. I've just realised they're Russians. And I thought... He's got to be mistaken. How did they get here? How could the Russians suddenly be, uh, you know, 15, 20 kilometres from the centre of Kiev? And um, we turned the car away and he just kept saying, they're Russians, they're Russians. And I was saying, OK, OK. And he said, Say so, do something to camera now. So I said to the, I did a, what we call a piece to camera. And I said, we've just come across these guys. They pointed their weapons, la, da, 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 da. And they are 
we think that they're going to be Russians. In the back of my mind, I was thinking later we'll discover they weren't. They were twitchy Ukrainian soldiers and people say, oh my God, you were on sort of over super alert there. But we turned the car around and there were some guys standing next to a sort of semi-derelict petrol station. And um, we wound the window down and said, what's going on? And one of them said, the Russians have taken the airport. And I said, from where? How did they get here? And he said, they came in on a helicopter, lots of helicopters. They were flying over dozens of helicopters. And I said, when? And he said, literally about half an hour, an hour ago, they have taken the airport. So we said, where are the helicopters? And he said, the, um, they've landed in a field just over there. And his colleague said, um, do you want me to show you where they were? So I said, yeah, yeah, let, let's go. So he led us in a car down this country track. We, we came around the corner. And I remember that as we were driving, you could see the side of the airport. There were lots of fires had taken hold. And then at this point, there was a lot of gunfire. And you heard that noise. Really, really intense. And as we drove around this sort of um, this road close to the airport, I remember saying to my producer, that is really loud, intense gunfire. And it could be going in any direction. And it got louder and louder. And then we got out of the car because the guy was pointing to a burnt out helicopter in a field. And I thought, we'll get out, take some shots of the helicopter. And it's interesting, isn't it? The psychology of this at the time, you, your brain almost closes down till you can only take one decision at a time. And everything else just goes. And so things about whether you've got a flat jacket or not, or how sensible it might be to pretty much get into, well, the very close confines of an airport, which has just been taken over by the Russian army. None of that really occurs. You think, we've got to see the helicopter. We've got to get out. We've got to get some amazing shots. I'll do some pieces to camera. I remember getting out and we were, my producer was filming with a small camera. And I remember that, I mean, he kept it on. He said later, never tell anybody this. It was probably a mistake. I would normally have had that switched off, but he, he had it on. So you could see our feet and you could hear the tick, 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 tick in the background. And then you hear me saying something like, it's really loud. We should, let's just think about this. I'm not sure this is sensible. Let's just think about it. But the appeal of going and seeing this helicopter in the field and then as we were standing there debating on what we should do, there was this sort of roar over our heads, very, very close, and you could hear it. It's, and, and as it came in, my producer was going, helicopter, helicopter, helicopter. And I didn't even have time to turn around and look at the sky because it fired a missile directly above our heads and the sound was so deafening and the ripples from the sound were... were you could feel my whole body was thrown to the ground and it just went and it fired a missile directly over our heads. And I remember that I jumped in the back of the car while I threw myself in the back of the car and lay across the back seat and shouted, get in the car, get in the car. And fortunately for us, well, fortunately, we were all okay. And fortunately as well, we managed to record it. So as we were driving away, all shaken and all... uh, just thankful that we were getting into a place where there was less noise, where the gunfire was dying down and where there was an, at least some element of safety in comparison with where we'd just been. Yeah, as as we were driving away from that hurriedly uh, to get to somewhere safer, we realised what we'd just seen. And um, we'd seen the first soldiers, Russian soldiers on the ground in the invasion of Ukraine. And as far as I know... We were the first there, and we just witnessed an extraordinary piece of history. 
this was obviously a really significant moment in that it was an attempt by Putin to decapitate Kiev, to take Kiev and bring down the entire country with this audacious hit uh, uh, right in the northern suburbs of the capital, whilst the majority of military analysts would have expected and journalists, of course, would have expected the attack to occur from Belarus um, and all around Donbass uh, and would have thought that Kiev uh, would have been relatively safe until later in any war. That isn't what happened. It was an unexpected hit on the capital. The idea being to take Hostomel Airport, fill it uh, with uh, Russian soldiers. And we know that there were many, many dozens, if not hundreds there. Um, and that they would then begin to surround Kiev through the northern suburbs of Bucha and Hostomel and Erpin, and that they would spread out from there, taking the capital or taking the northern suburbs by surprise in the first instance, and then um, cutting off and decapitating the capital was the plan. Um, as we know, without leaping too far forward, as we know, um, they became bogged down in the battle for uh, Bucha and Hostomel and couldn't go any further for all the reasons we know and we'll come on to later. One of the rumours among journalists at the time was that um, there was going to be an assassination squad uh, that came from this helicopter drop in the northern suburbs and their intention was to assassinate Zelensky. And this seemed feasible. The Russians needed to take Zelensky, get him out of the way, impose their own puppet, and this was all part of, of the tactics of their way of taking the capital. And the only way that they could possibly think about doing it. So Zelensky knew that he was a target from very early on and began to, um, I think from day one or day two, his, nobody knew his exact movements. Um, he never appeared in the same place twice. He was making uh, uh, announcements via his mobile phone and via Zoom uh, addresses each evening from dark rooms or from outside where you couldn't quite see where it was from. But very quickly... Um, people realised that he was a main target. Get rid of Zelensky, put in a puppet, and uh, you can begin to start running Kiev as you would want to. And that he was so important, really, for the morale, not just in terms of the tactics of the Russians, but for the morale. Lose your figurehead at that point so early in the war, and the war might well be lost. Well, that was an incredibly dramatic account of the first day's fighting uh, from Paul Kenyon. And what you didn't actually hear in that interview, uh, because we didn't have time to play it, was the events of the night before when the Washington Post reporter in his hotel had warned that there might be a war coming and no one really believed it. I mean, Paul was uh, was suspicious and actually went down to have a look at the bomb shelter just in case. But, you know, that just underpins really what an unbelievable surprise it was for most people, apart from that reporter who'd actually got uh, information from intelligence sources that proved to be correct. But it just reminded me, listening to Paul's account, uh, Patrick, how incredibly dangerous the job of a war reporter can be. Yes, absolutely right. I was uh, My heart was in my mouth when he was describing that those events. I mean, I don't want to bang on about my own experiences, but... You know, that's very much the case when something is kicking off. You have no idea where the action is, where the front line is, who's, who's friend and who's foe. Uh, and it is, you know, we ought to take our hats off to these guys. When you see those images, you know, they've come at, with a very, very high sort of danger price tag on them. And, and it is just really kind of driving around, see what, what the hell's going on. And everyone's very jumpy in, in those opening hours of any 
conflict or the first days of a conflict and you stand a very good chance of, of being shot up by the people who are meant to be on your side. I mean, this happened to me in in um, Iraq when, uh, you know, a colleague from ITM was uh, and his uh, cameraman and sound man were, were sh- fired at by an American tank just inside the Iraqi border uh, and killed, you know. So, you know, you, you're as much threat from your friends as you are from your enemies. Anyway, um, getting back to the the actual conflict itself, you know, I remember in the run-up to the war thinking how familiar all these place names seemed, of course, from the Second World War. So anyone who's still alive who fought in that conflict on the Eastern Front, all these names uh, will be very familiar all the, uh, around Ukraine, Crimea, etc. So it's a it's uh, you know it's, it's a long blood-soaked um, story and uh, a, a place that's been fought over for centuries. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, you, you know, this story goes all the way back to the First World War, doesn't it? Um, you know, the the fighting and in fact, there's a piece in the in the papers. We'll be going on to deal with the latest updates uh, later on in the program. But there's a piece in the paper just reminding everyone how many times atrocities have taken place in Ukraine during the First World War. That's both by the Whites and the Reds during the Russian Civil War. Of course, the Nazis in the Second World War, and now the Russians uh, in this current conflict. And how you know. It's, it's depressing to think about it in these ways, uh, Patrick, but how this is nothing new for Ukrainians. They are used to this level of barbarity, if you ever can get used to that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that we thought had uh, gone from the pages of history, didn't we? The idea that when an army moves in, uh, they're just going to rape, pillage, murder the civilian population. Uh, somehow, you know, the, the kind of idea of progress has, has got lodged in our heads to think that, you know, soldiers, are gonna, Russian soldiers are going to behave better than they did in the Second World War, which um, it turns out not to be the case. Uh, I must admit, I think some of us thought that we still owed a sort of debt of gratitude to the Russian, the Red Army, for for essentially kind of um, tipping the balance, winning the war, if you like, uh, for us uh, on the Eastern Front, taking huge casualties. So the brutality they showed to the Germans when they got to East Prussia and, and were advancing on Berlin was, I won't say justified, but kind of understandable. Uh, I no longer feel that. I, I, I am shocked and um, baffled, really, at just how brutish uh, the Russian soldier appears to be. We'll, we'll talk, be talking about that with some experts um, in later episodes, but uh, I think that was a, a sort of parallel shocking realisation. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you on on that, Patrick. I mean, the question you always ask yourself with armies is the extent to which it's, uh, you know, officially condoned or encouraged. And we will never know the the true answer to that. But what, what you do get a sense of is that right across the Russian army, these sorts of things are happening. So clearly there is uh, no sanction being put on soldiers for committing these sort of acts. And therefore you have to suspect, actually, this is a weapon that the Russians are prepared to use to intimidate their their opponents. Yeah, I mean, it's um, quite a lot has been said about this Russian idea of respect. And respect is based on, in their minds, on fear. So the more you're feared, the more you're respected. Uh, It's a kind of weird thing to aspire to, but that does seem to be the case. Uh, something else that sort of struck me is that uh, there's been reporting coming out of uh, Kherson, which suggests that we've got another sort of Second World War parallel, which is the uh, emergence of a kind of partisan partisan groups, uh, and that there's a operation going on there 
we don't really know how organised it is, but to undermine the Russians in their own backyard, if you like, or what is now their own backyard, um, by sniping, stabbings, you know, drunken soldiers are being waylaid and set upon with knife, by knife-wielding partisans. So that's, uh, that's something that has, again, echoes of the Eastern Front in the Second World War, where... You know, the Russians had to, do, sorry, the Germans had to devote a huge amount of resources to uh, try to secure the areas they'd already allegedly uh, conquered uh, against partisan attacks. So they're they're costly in terms of of the price paid by the underground fighters, um, but they do have a huge effect on Russian morale, which I would say we'll come onto that again a bit later. Uh, is pretty low to start off with. Yeah, but we we should also, uh, you know, we can overstress the historical parallels. This is a very modern war in terms of technology. Um, The sort of kit that's being used is really um, extraordinary. It's the first time we're seeing it uh, on a a modern battlefield, Patrick. And, um, you know, the effects of drones uh, in particular, the long-range rocket systems that the uh, Ukrainians seem to have been supplied with now. We'll talk more about that when we get on to latest developments. The M777 howitzers, javelin and M-law anti-tank weapons. I mean, all these bits of kit are completely changing the battlefield. I mean, the tank in the Second World War was king, but the tank seems to be a bit of a death trap these days, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, that was really the kind of symbol of, of Russian might, wasn't it? And sort of Cold War might, the, the amount of tanks you could amass on either side. Uh, but now... Um, you know, they, they just look, they're trundling along. And, you, I mean, this is an amazing imagery we've all seen of uh, a column of tanks sort of inch, going very slowly down a down a road. And then suddenly this little black thing appears in the corner of the screen and then wham. And, of course, the explosion that follows is quite devastating. Of course, we learnt that one reason for the fantastically catastrophic consequences of a strike is that the Russians again, in what seems to be a sort of uh, fairly typical fashion, stacked all their ammunition in a very vulnerable place. So what you're seeing is the combined effects of the actual missile warhead uh, with the ammunition going up. And seeing those pictures of, you know, turrets and and the the main armaments sort of flying through the air really was very, very spectacular. Um, So... But having said that technology is really, really shaping the the conflict, it all still comes down to uh, a soldier with a rifle and grenades uh, trying to take ground. You can never get away from this. People of over the 20th century, air power advocates would say, look, you know, you're you're only going to need foot soldiers to actually take uh, the territory and, and act as sort of security guards, if you like, what, because the enemy will be absolutely obliterated from the air. That didn't turn out to be the case. The same sort of claims are being made for HIMARS uh, long-range systems again. But, you know, ultimately, uh, as we've seen again from some, some of, the, of the footage, it, it's sort of um, guys in trenches trying to take other trenches by grenade and by rifle. On that trench point actually i was talking to a british military army officer last night and a ukrainian who's been on the front lines until a couple of weeks ago and we're talking about this trench business and uh the uh, british guy said you know looking at those trenches uh they're not very secure you need to they seem to be digging long trenches uh whereas if we were 
there, we would be digging short trenches. It's a very simple thing. So you have a kind of trench line that's like a sort of um, dotted line, if you like. So you occupy a small three or four man one. And if that's taken, the enemy then has to emerge from the trench, expose himself in order to get to the next one. Uh, In this case, uh, if you've got into the trench, then you've got a kind of a clear line of, of fire uh, to the defenders. So that was something I hope that the the Ukrainians uh, are being told by someone else because uh, it does appear to make them quite vulnerable. I think the Russians are doing the same on their side as well, so maybe that sort of evens things up. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear that, Patrick, because you, 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 you know, we, we all think back to the First World War with those zigzag trenches that were designed, of course, to protect in each of those bays in case there was an artillery strike that actually came into the trench. And you, if you were in the next bay, of course, you were protected from the blast. But that still meant that there was communication all the way along the trench. You're talking about sort of uh, interlocking system of rifle pits, effectively, uh, which seems to be the modern way of doing things. Um, but let's talk about some of the intangibles that still pay a huge part in the shape of war in other words what is going to make the difference in this war if the technology somehow equalizes out and one of the really obvious points and i think will play in again a little bit when we go on to what's been happening in the last week is there is there a real kind of you know change of momentum one of the massive advantages the ukrainians have got of course is morale they're fighting for their homeland it's important it really matters we go back to the second world war the Russians fought tooth and nail for their motherland. You know, Stalingrad, I've just reviewed a very good book on that. And of course, it's tremendously important to Russian PR, the story of Stalingrad. But what we've really got in Ukraine now is Stalingrad in reverse, as we could see at Mariupol. So uh, morale is clearly a big advantage for the Ukrainians. And the Russians, on the other hand, well, what exactly are they fighting for? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the Ukraine is fighting for, Ukrainians are fighting for everything. They're fighting for their very existence. And the Russians are fighting for nothing. Uh, you know, if you ask a soldier, why are you here? What are you doing? I mean, they might spout the propaganda line that we're denazifying Ukraine, but even the most stupid soldier by now must realize that this is not the case. A very interesting point is who are these soldiers? Where do they come from? And what I think the overwhelming evidence suggests is that they're people, they're cannon fodder, they're, they're boys from poor backward areas of the country, they're uneducated, they're often from ethnic minorities, uh, they're on the fringe of the Russian Empire, they're not from Moscow, they're not from St. Petersburg. And... Uh, I was talking to someone who's who's been on the front lines uh, who was telling me that uh, he, he was talking to Russian captives and they were really pathetic in, in their kind of, you know, hope, hopelessness and un- complete lack of understanding of what was going on. He gave me an example of, of just how primitive the towns and villages they come from were, that uh, this is back in the cold uh, months of the year. Uh, when they When they took over a village... They didn't. They had no gas in their home villages, so they didn't know how to reconnect the gas that had been turned off by the uh, owners when they fled. So uh, instead, to keep warm, they were just smashing up furniture uh, and lighting fires for warmth and also to cook in the sort of living rooms of these houses. Uh, so, you know, very paradoxical that the land of Russia, whose wealth is based uh, almost entirely on gas and oil, uh, a lot of the outlying areas don't actually have gas. 
Fascinating stuff, Patrick. Great, great little insight. Uh, I can see your contacts aren't entirely wasted. You're still still in touch with lots of people who who will be relevant to the podcast. Okay, we're, we're just going to take a quick break, and after the break, we'll be talking to someone really fascinating, Irina Chalupa, who was born in Ukraine, moved to the US, and has reported for many years on Eastern Europe. And we'll also be summing up the key events in the war during the last week. So do join us. Welcome back. We're going to hear now from Irina Chalupa, someone I've known and admired for many years for her knowledge and understanding of the complexities of the situation uh, over the decades in Central and Eastern Europe. So Saul and I spoke to her the other day and asked her, first of all, to explain the historical underpinnings of the centuries-old hostility between Ukraine and Russia. Well, they're historic in nature, and um, since... Well, certainly in my lifetime, um, I don't remember any period where there hasn't been some hostility between Ukraine and Russia. And most pe- most Ukrainians were ra- raised to believe that uh, Russia is their enemy. Basically, when the Ukrainian medieval state arose, probably in the 4th, 5th and 6th centuries, uh, when it became a powerful state in the 9th and 10th um, and uh, 11th century, Moscow was just a backwater. And I like to say that had um, Kievan medieval princes uh, done what everybody else in Europe had been doing and killed their bastard children instead of giving them lands to rule, we wouldn't have the problems that we have today. So um, Moscow became a principality in the 11th century, whereas Kiev had already existed for at least four or 500 years. So the entire history of Russia comes much later, but claims beginnings from what is now Ukraine. Every country that we have on the map of the world today takes legacy of what happened on its territory in the ancient days, right? I mean, when we look at ancient Greece, do they have anything to do with Hellenic Greece that we all learned in schools? Uh, Or the Turks, the Ottomans of yore? So most countries claim the history that happened on their country as their own. Russia is not in the area where Kiev is. It's not in the territory of Ukraine, yet it wants to claim Ukraine's history as its own. And I suppose to some extent it has some connections to Ukraine because it came out of Ukraine. Russia likes to position itself as the older brother, but they are in fact the younger brother because the Ukrainian state, the the, the Kievan Ukrainian um, ancient Rus state is something that is the patrimony of the people that live on the land where it existed. So I think that that is... Um, part of Russia's big chip on its shoulder. It also has a lot to do with some sort of an inferiority complex, I think, that the Russia, Russia as a state has. And also, Ukrainians and Russians, and, and the way the countries have been developing, particularly since the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukrainians are much more open to the West. They want to be part of the West, whereas Russians and the Russian state and the Russian leadership, they want to insulate the country from the rest of the world, and they want to go their own special way. We've, we've heard Putin and various other philosophers and, and talking heads um, in Russia declare this time and time again, that the decadent West is not for them, that they have a special path, they see themselves as a third Rome. So it's this mythology that they've created for themselves and they are trying to live up up to it. So basically, historically, Russia has always been 
an enemy of Ukraine. They have tried to swallow Ukraine. They've invaded it time and time again. They've con- concluded massive treaties with Ukraine and never abided by any of them. And um, there's even a joke that um, when God was uh, creating the world, um, he's uh, talking to the angels and saying, oh, look at this land that I've created, Ukraine. I'm, I've given them such wonderful resources, such beautiful land. They have access to the sea. They have wonderful forests. The earth is so rich. Everything grows. And the people are so talented. They sing so beautifully. And one of the angels says to God, well, God, isn't that a little bit too much for one people? And God says, wait till you see their neighbors. So, <laughs> so that, that, in a nutshell, that's essentially what, what it is. And um, as I said, parts of Ukraine were part of the Russian empire. Ukrainians are, were always persecuted by the Russians. They were enslaved as serfs by Catherine the Great. The Cossack state in the 17th and 18th centuries was destroyed by Russia. So any attempts at Ukrainian sovereignty, uh, Ukrainian independence, uh, Ukrainian liberty were always destroyed by Russia. And the best and and brightest of Ukraine were always taken to Russia and and, uh, imperialized. And um, well, obviously, I suppose if you're an enslaved people, the way to make a career and to sort of advance is to serve the master. So moving forward to the 21st century, can you just briefly tell us um, where we uh, (coughs) arrived at this this position uh, from, uh, you know, the kind of uh, 2015 period onwards, very succinctly. Well, we all know how the 20th century began. Uh, Two empires fell apart and various countries arose um, in the wake of those um, disintegrations. Ukraine declared independence in 1919 and was promptly swallowed by the Bolshevik uh, forces and remained part of... um, of the Soviet Union until the Soviet Union fell apart. During World War II, Western Ukraine, which had been then under Poland, became part of of Soviet Ukraine. And in 1991, everything fell apart and Ukraine uh, gained independence, declared independence. And all of the other countries um, that were Soviet republics also became independent. And initially, uh, Ukrainian government was made up, and it still is to some extent, of old party functionaries, people who came to the Komsomol. The only experiences that these people had were the communist system, the communist hierarchies, communist education, communist administration, and so forth and so on. So they administered Ukraine and ruled Ukraine as they knew to do so. But Ukraine began charting its own independent course very, very early on and uh, wanted to separate itself as much as possible from Russia. And that has been... A problem for Russia. Um, someone once said that the only kinds of uh, neighbors that Russia tolerates are either vassals or enemies. And um, Ukraine, throughout the 30 years of independence, has tried in various ways to align itself closer with Russia, whether it's um, uh, launching this Partnership for Peace program with NATO, whether um, it's talking about wanting to be a part of the European Union, signing up to all sorts of European Union treaties and so forth and so on. Ukraine has made it clear that it sees its future as a open, democratic European nation. And Russia doesn't like that. Uh, do you think that the war in February was inevitable uh, and that Putin always intended to have invade or was there something that could have been done either 
among the belligerents or by the West to prevent it? That's difficult to say, and I'm not such a great political analyst or historian where I would actually venture to say that, oh, had we done had we done this or had they done this, this would not have happened. I can only say that every time Ukraine has kind of lurched uh, towards the West, every time Ukraine has had a revolution, uh, Russia has reacted. In 2004, Ukraine had the Orange Revolution. This is when a pro-Russian candidate uh, tried to steal the elections. And... Um, uh, Viktor Yushchenko ultimately won the presidential election, but the first attempts at sowing discord and trying to wrest parts of Ukraine away happened then. And um, under Yanukovych's rule or leadership, um, they had the first attempt at separating certain parts of Ukraine from Ukraine proper. We saw what happened during the Maidan revolution. Then President Viktor Yanukovych suddenly made a 180 degree turn, or is it 360 degree turn? He made a radical, <laughs> radical turn from the course that Ukraine was on. And instead of European integration, he decided that Ukraine needed to be closer to Russia. And, uh, and all of these negotiations that had been taking place about European integration, about this big treaty between the EU and Ukraine were abandoned. And that's what caused the demonstrations. Ukrainians didn't want that. Ukrainians, like I said earlier, Ukrainians keep walking towards Europe and they are determined to get there. I mean, when we say that walking towards Europe, it's a bit of a ridiculous statement because Ukraine... Geographically, Ukraine is the center of Europe. We forget that so much of Russia is Europe. Um, it's Europe all the way up to the Ural Mountains. So could it have been avoided? It's difficult to say. Uh, we know that Vladimir Putin has said from the get-go that the disintegration of the Soviet Union was the biggest geopolitical uh, tragedy of, of the 20th century. He has never hidden his imperialist kind of um, appetites. He has always questioned the validity and the sovereignty of Ukraine. We all know that he told an American president that Ukraine isn't really a, a real country and you know we shouldn't take it seriously. So I don't really think that it could have been, you know, Perhaps it could, we could look at it as one of those things like, it's almost like watching a horror movie and the slasher is coming and you know, you know he's coming and you're trying to warn somebody and, and nothing happens. You can't really do anything and it can't be stopped. Uh, certainly, had Ukraine been better armed, stronger militarily, perhaps that could have been some sort of a deterrent. But Ukraine was stripped of everything it had under Yanukovych. And it was stripped of its nuclear weapons um, in the 1990s. And it was given guarantees. It was given security guarantees by a country that then turned around and invaded it. So I, I really can't say. Okay, despite the, uh, the bombast from Putin, were you still actually surprised on the morning of the invasion itself when he, when he, he actually had gone ahead and authorised it? I was a little bit. I'll tell you, my, my husband is, um, is somebody who's always said, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. But I thought he had destabilized Ukraine so much. In 2014, Russia bit off Crimea. It took swathes of um, eastern territory. They destabilized the country considerably, considerably. We had over 2 million displaced people. The economy was suffering because of, uh, because of this war. Because, I mean, the war... The war kind of accelerated on February 24th. It's been ongoing since 2014. 
So I thought that he had everything he needed. He had, in, in effect, he had a frozen conflict, a rather large one. And uh, Putin seems to like these kinds of uncertain situations. He likes stirring trouble up and letting, letting it fester. He always seems to gain the upper hand in these kinds of situations. So I was, I was surprised because by invading, Russia shows its true face. Um, yeah, can you sketch out for us uh, what you see as being the key phases of the war to date and the crucial turning points as you see them? Well, obviously, the, the shock of the um, uh, of the beginning of the war on February twenty fourth is uh, is the first thing that that we need to keep in mind. And then I think that Ukraine's reaction, uh, the actual ability of Ukrainians to fight back, pretty well, relatively effectively, considering that uh, how the sides are um, are not are not matched. I think that. Um, those are that is a key consideration, the withdrawal of Russian uh, forces from uh, Kiev in April is a turning point. I believe uh, it was a big moral boost um, and a political boost uh, and a military boost for Ukraine. The discovery of the atrocities in Bucha and the other cities, I think, are a key turning point because. Again, this shows us the true face of Russia, the true face of its military, the true nature of its campaign. I think the siege of Mariupol and the complete and utter annihilation of this city is another turning point. It's a painful moment for the Ukrainians, I suppose a victorious moment for the Russians. But what kind of a victory is it when all you get is a city of ashes? And probably the uh, the fall of Kherson also because it, um, it strengthens Russia's position in terms of gaining this land bridge to Crimea that we all know that they want. And I think to some extent we haven't seen it fully, but the arrival of the heavy artillery in Ukraine seems to be changing things ever so slowly, but the HIMARS are making a big difference. So, so it's kind of a, you know, it's an incremental kind of a thing. And I think we'll see a lot of turning points before this war finally ends. Exactly. We still have a long way to go. We don't know how long it'll, it will take. Things do seem to be uh, turning in a slightly more optimistic uh, way for Ukraine. Are, are you feeling optimistic now? No, 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 I'm not. I'm not feeling optimistic uh, because um, Ukrainians are very concerned that the story is no longer front page news. Um, the amount of devastation and human loss is just... It's unbelievable. And um, every day I read um, on social media and, and, uh, and hear from friends about bright, talented, wonderful people that should be building the future of Ukraine dying. You know, the, the best minds of the country are in the front. And um, historically we've seen that in the Soviet Union in particular, every, Almost every generation, there were these waves of arrests. So talented people, promising people, people who wanted to change the country were arrested and given extremely, extremely long sentences. Now, Ukraine's best artists, best writers, best thinkers, best IT people, they're at the front defending their country. And um, so the talent that you sort of count on to build and develop is being, is being destroyed by Russian bombs and missiles. What do you think um, is needed to change the game uh, on the Ukrainian side? But also, uh, could you address the, the question of Russia itself? What ne would need to happen there to 
bring this thing to a conclusion? Well, as a Ukrainian-American, I have to tell you, I don't like the way some of these questions are framed. Ukraine was invaded. Ukraine is being shattered, battered, devastated, burned, raped, and pillaged. And Ukraine has to sort of do something to end this. Uh, in an ideal world, and I know we do not live in an ideal world. Sorry, sorry, I, I didn't mean to put it in No, 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 I, I understand. Terms. No, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, I understand. I'm just simply, I'm just simply saying in, I know. in terms of, of support that all the you know, battlefield... Uh, conditions that need to change to bring victory for Ukraine and uh, conversely what do you think needs to happen for uh, the Russian campaign to collapse? Well for example I think that if Ukraine had the HIMARS and all the equipment that they have today on February 24th we might not be having this podcast conversation today. The war could have been you know the equivalent of a six-day war or something um, similar to that but the kind of aid that Ukraine is getting, I call it life support aid. You know, the West gives them enough big guns to kind of let them stay alive and not get destroyed completely. I think just continued support and continued pressure on Russia, um, that is the only way that Ukraine can win the war. We know that the West doesn't want to be involved. They don't want to have boots on the ground. Ukrainians aren't asking for boots on the ground. But this, this war is a threat to all of Europe. It's a threat, I mean, I think, I, I think we can honestly say that it is a threat to Western civilization, to the Western way of life that we grew up on, that we take for granted to a very, very large extent, a way of life that is centered on rule of law and people abiding by, countries abiding by the treaties that they sign and their commitments and so forth and so on. And you can't just, it's not the 18th and 19th century where you just invade your neighbor because, because you feel like it. So I think the West needs to continue, America in particular, continue. Britain, Britain's been a great ally and a great supporter of um, of Ukraine, this has to continue, and it has to it has to continue proactively. The big guns have to be delivered yesterday and not tomorrow. Well, that was Irina Chalupa, or Urka, as she's known to her friends, giving us plenty of food for thought. Fascinating, really, to hear that Ukraine was actually a political entity well before Russia, an important point to make. But also coming back to the present, she was very insistent uh, that welcome, though, the kit that was coming in from the US and Britain and to a lesser extent Europe is, uh, much, much more is needed. And as we're going to hear in a minute, there are just the first signs that a new and more game-changing kit is on its way. Yeah, and now more than ever, because all the signs are that a big push is in the offing. Uh, that will be the first major counteroffensive by Ukraine to take back Kherson, uh, the southern city at the mouth of, of the Dnieper River, uh, which fell to Russian forces early in the conflict. That was about five months ago. Now, on the question of, of uh, Kit, uh, I think the Ukrainians will be mightily encouraged by the statements coming out of Washington about um, about their determination to keep the kit flowing. So the other day there was a very interesting briefing at the Department of Defence, um, which really said, you know, guys, be getting it 
for as long as you need it, essentially. And a big shopping list was was revealed by um, uh, Colin Carl, who's an undersecretary uh, at the Department of Defence. And it's all the stuff that we've been hearing about, ammunition for the HIMARS batteries, uh, loads and loads of um, artillery shells, and all sorts of stuff that, you know, javelins, 1,000 javelins, uh, those very effective anti-tank weapons, but also right down the line to things like mobile field ambulances, etc. So I think that that's a uh, that, that that that's a very encouraging sign for the Ukrainians that as long as they can keep their will going, uh, then they will have the means to actually keep fighting the Russians. How did you read that? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, uh, Patrick. Two two key developments, really. I mean, first of all, the announcement about the aid, as you, as you pointed out, and one and one thing I should add to the list you've already spoken about, and this is really key, is munitions for the National Advanced Surface to Air Missile Systems. This is an air defence system with an engagement range of 120 kilometres. This is a real game changer because uh, it means that they can create an air umbrella and, uh, in effect, uh, make it very difficult for Russian planes to fly but other stuff seems to be going on possibly not announced yet there are little indications that the ukrainians now have the capacity not just to fire high mars which has a range i think i'm right in saying of about 70 kilometers but also two other developments or two other indications of news stories this week uh one in fact this morning patrick that that suggests that a airbase in Crimea, which is 200 kilometres from the front lines, it's about 140 miles, has been struck by long-distance tactical uh, missiles. And these are something, this is probably kit supplied by the US that has not been acknowledged by the Defence Department up to this point, probably for the very reason that they wanted to do this strike. And there's something else linked in with this strike that's also interesting, and that is the possibility that uh, the air defence missiles that the Russians might have used to knock out the American missiles coming in, those air defence systems were knocked out by a strike by Ukrainian planes that might also have been using uh, American kit in the form of missiles fired from those planes. So we've heard all all along that the Americans are not going to be providing their own jets, the F-16s, although even that's now in question, as we heard from the briefing. And we'll come on to the briefing in a second or, or talk about it in a bit more detail. But it seems that they may have used American missiles uh, to knock out the Russian defence system, which allowed this strike. And it's really uh, significant because it means that air bases, munitions depots, uh, supply points, 200 kilometres and more from the front line can now be struck by the Ukrainians. And this could be a real game changer. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Just going back to the uh, NASAMs, uh, the air de- these air defence systems, of course, we, we tend to think conventionally, oh, well, let's uh, shoot down incoming fast jets. But, of course, everything that flies now has some sort of battlefield use. So it's drones, uh, helicopters, cruise missiles, as well as well as fast jets. So all these are vulnerable to that system. So that is a uh, a fantastic uh, asset to have. On the on this strike in Crimea, it really is fascinating because clearly um, there's a lot going on that that just doesn't get into sort of open source areas and until they're they're actually in use. So I think the Russians will be very very worried about that. In true Russian fashion, they explained the um, the explosions as being 
uh, ammunition, which somehow mysteriously had been detonated, rather as they did with the Moskva when she went down. So I think that's a kind of, um, normally with, with Russian disinformation, it is kind of proactive and they're trying to sort of shape a story. But in this case, I think it's just sort of just, just making something up to try and explain away something that's clear to the, to the world, um, is, is a great, um, operation in, in Ukrainian terms. The, the, the greater the distance that the Ukrainians can hit the Russians at, the better it is for them because it, it, for, for one thing, it pushes the civilian population out of the, uh, firing line. For the other, it completely disrupts uh, rear operations for the Russians. So all the mundane things you have to do to keep a battle going, moving supplies up, giving orders from your command and control center, all the rest of it, all those now have to be way uh, behind the actual action if they're going to have any kind of security at all. So this is hugely disruptive for the Russians. Yeah, and going back to the briefing a second, you mentioned uh, Dr. Colin Carl, who's Under Secretary of Defence and effectively number three in the Pentagon. And this is significant because this this effectively is information coming right from the top. Big briefing. He took, he gave a lot of detail, and we're just going to read out a few of the key points of that briefing. And we've already discussed the announcement for military aid, and he referred to that. But he also uh, talked, gave a lot of figures, uh, which are really quite astonishing: seventy to eighty thousand Russians killed and wounded and three to 4,000 armoured vehicles, which of course include tanks. We, we spoke about how vulnerable tanks were. Uh, he went on to say that Russian efforts in the east have petered out in the last month as the Ukrainians fight them to a standstill. That's really in the Donbass that he was referring to there. Uh, why? Thanks to better morale, which we mentioned before, and improved kit, notably uh, the HIMARS, which we... Uh, we've already referred to the HIMARS. Um, it's worth giving its full name, actually, because uh, I wasn't exactly sure what it was. The High Mobility Artillery Rocket Systems. This is forcing the Russians to move back, as Patrick's pointed out, and slowing them down. He also said that Russia is using up their precision-guided material at a very high rate, and because of sanctions, and there's a lot of question in the media now as to the effect sanctions are really having. Is it doing the job? Well, according to Carl, it is, because it's making it very difficult for Russians to resubmit Supply with these, uh, you know, the extra kit they need to make these weapons, uh, and therefore it's going to have to rely more on dumb weapons. And the last important point is he wouldn't rule out uh, the supply of F-16s in the future, but says they are prioritizing aim aid, sorry, to get Ukrainian MiG planes in the air, that spare parts, and also possibly this missile system that I've already referred to, which might have enabled them to knock out that that anti-missile, the Russian anti-missile batteries. Yeah, I think from the Ukrainian point of view, the really good news is this sort of pledge that the pipeline is open and it's going to be flowing. You know, this uh, huge amounts of money are, are being spent, um, and there doesn't seem to be any kind of lack of willingness on the American part to slow things down or reduce the flow. So that's excellent news. In our discussion last night, uh, there was some uh, thought among some people that, you know, when it gets to... The, the, real, the thing that Ukrainians really don't want to happen is for Western political will to falter. And there was some uh, questioning of whether uh, the pain that, cons- that consumers are going to feel, particularly in Europe, continental Europe, uh, this winter as their fuel bills rocket is going to translate into political pressure on politicians to do a deal or rather to to encourage Ukraine to uh, sit down and, and talk some sort of peace deal with Russia. Now, my view is that that's not 
terribly likely. I haven't seen any signs at all of people saying, why are we having to suffer um, because of Ukraine's stubbornness and determination to win back all its its national territory? Uh, it's a com- imponderable. We won't know until it's happened. But I'd be interested in your thoughts. Well, I think, you know, it's it's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast, isn't it, Patrick? You and I, you said at the beginning, it's it's very frustrating now to get an accurate depiction in the in the news of what's going on. And this is part of a so-called war weariness. There was a very interesting piece in The Times this week by William Haig, the former foreign secretary, arguing that it suits Putin if the West's interest in the Ukrainian war fades. And one of the indications that it's fading is the lack of news coverage. Uh, he argues, on the other hand, that it's vital that Western governments convince their populations that we're in it for the long haul if in his view such a, a an existential threat to europe that's how that you know he he feels it's that serious and i think you and i uh, arguably do too is to be defeated so it is absolutely vital that uh these issues are spoken about and the population that is the population of britain america and the rest of europe understands that we do need to accept some economic pain if we're going to make a stand frankly in the same way that we spoke about the falklands war it was important to make a stand against the argentinians absolutely and i think what um, irina said earlier on about you know this isn't just a ukrainian fight it's a, a european fight and indeed a global fight so I think we should be doing our bit to keep keep people informed and and to make sure that the stakes are, are fully understood. Yeah, just to mention a last couple of uh, very interesting developments. One good, uh, one not so good, and the not so good one is that the you know the excellent news that the grain cargoes were beginning to flow again. That that, that some kind of deal had allowed the first grain to uh, move out of Ukraine heading for turkey now the 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 unfortunate uh result of all of that is that the first shipment has actually been turned down by the buyer because it's not in good enough condition so this is a sort of slightly grim development maybe not surprising to those who know anything about foodstuffs because this stuff's been sitting in silos for up to six months so you know that's not good news for the rest of the world because ukrainian grain is a massive supplier of, of foodstuffs around the world so that's that's the bad news Slightly more encouraging news is the news out this morning that there is a possible Ukraine counteroffensive around Izium in Luhansk. And that's significant because, as we've already spoken about, there's a lot of talk about the potential move against Kherson, also Kharkiv further north. But Izium is a little bit further south from Kharkiv. And if the Ukrainians are opening up a front there in an area that effectively the Russians think they've already secured, uh, that is also a sign that the tide is beginning to turn. Absolutely. Well, we'll be keeping a very close eye on all that. Do join us next week and you'll hear all the latest news and views on this fascinating and incredibly important war.